0: I'm Michael McMullen, And I'm John Mark Yates. Welcome to This Week in Church History. Welcome to This Week in Church History. This is week number 13 of 2020, featuring the dates March 29 through April 4. What I've... The opportunity for us to discuss today is a fascinating conversation about the development of the canon, the New Testament, especially as we understand it. What prompts this uh, is a key event happening this week in the 4th century as the church father, Athanasius, writes his festal letter number 39 in celebration of Easter during this week in 367. In this letter, he outlines the contours of the canon of the New Testament. So to talk more about this, I've asked Michael Kruger, president of RTS Charlotte and professor of New Testament and early Christianity at RTS to join with us to talk about the development of the canon. So welcome to This Week in Church History, Dr. Kruger. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be on the program. What we want to talk about here is this this canonical development. Why is Athanasius and this festival letter number 39 so important here?
1: Yeah, well, Athanasius obviously himself was a very significant church father, a major player in fourth century patristic thought, but this particular letter has sort of become famous in its own right, uh, largely because, as many people observed over the years, this is the first time we ever have a complete listing of just these 27 books and only these 27 books by Mm -hmm. any church father up to this point. Uh, So most people are like, well, look, this is the first time it's ever happened. It's really noteworthy. Well, and in fact, I've I've heard people speak against
0: the New Testament saying, hey, it's the fourth century before we get a full list. Yeah, This has got to be a problem for Christianity. And I know that you've written extensively on this. Uh, You say, absolutely, this isn't a challenge because this isn't the first real list that we've had.
1: Yeah, not only is it not the first list, but I think it also puts too much emphasis on lists. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think people think the only way we can know what books are in the canon is by formal, expressed, uh, kind of um, you know, blatant sort of uh, statements. But I, I think we can find out what Christians were using and reading in other ways, first of all. And uh, I've argued elsewhere that long before Athanasius' festival letter, there's a core canon of probably 22 out of the 27 books that have been operating for centuries. So that's the first point, is that you don't need a list to know. Right. Um, But the second thing is, you indicate it's not the first list. Um, We have lists much earlier. um, And I've actually argued elsewhere that it's not even the first complete list. Right. Um, We have a list much earlier in the second century, the Moratorium fragment has a list of about 22 to the 27. But then I've argued also that Origins homilies on Joshua in the third century has what I think is a 27 book list that's exactly like this and predates it by about a century. Right. And so as we look
0: at this, we see this continuity. And Mm -hmm. that's not even to mention the way in which the fathers consistently cite from all 27 books. I know they cite from other things as well, but these are consistent across almost all of the fathers which is its own
1: form of list uh, in a way, I I would think. Absolutely. I mean, you know, when we talk about patristic citations, um, it's remarkably consistent and it really does touch all on the core books. As I said, when you look at patristic citations, you can establish about 21 or 22 of the 27 books pretty much in place by the end of the second century, um, long before Athanasius. And so <laughs> the idea that we have to wait till Athanasius is festal letter to know what books are in the canon simply isn't the right interpretation of it. He is He is stating to his congregation what has been a long-established practice.
0: And in this way, he's he's probably just encouraging his congregation. Hey, this is what you need to be reading. Make sure that you're uh, getting to this. Now, you wrote a book called Canon Revisited, establishing the origins and authority of the New Testament books. And you help readers connect to the the whole of canonical
1: uh, development. What inspired you to write this particular book? Yeah, Canon Revisited was born out of a number of things. Um, certainly, I've had a long-term interest in canon just as a general uh, scholarly endeavor. It's been where my research has focused for a long time. Um, but I wrote that book in particular because I had a, a elective at Reformed Theological Seminary, and I didn't have anything to recommend for my students to read that I thought uh, <laughs> really answered the questions they were asking. I would, I, I would assign a book, and they'd be like, well, the book you assigned was fine, but it didn't answer the questions I want to have answered. So I realized the only way I was going to be able to do that is to write the book myself. So I actually wrote it. For my own class, but then hopefully, and I and I trust that it's being used for other classes too.
0: That's fantastic. Is it a book that uh, you would find uh, that pastors would would find
1: interesting as well? I think so. I I wrote it certainly for seminary students. I wrote it for educated laymen. I I wrote it for pastors. I wrote it for anybody who's either themselves struggling with the the origins of the canon, or or who's encouraging and teaching others um, about why they can trust the canon. So I do recommend it to pastors, and I've been encouraged over the years how many pastors have read it. I, I regularly get notes. About different books I've written, and I, I will say, "Canon Revisited: Long and Away" is the one I get most of the comments about. Uh,
0: that, to me, is is so encouraging that that we've got pastors who are seeking this out, uh, because this seems to me, in many of my conversations with those outside of the faith, that this is a key press point. Why would someone who wants to
1: attack Christianity strive to attack at the point of the canon? Well, that's a great question, and I think there's a long historical answer to that. But I think for generations, critics of Christianity have recognized this as a weak spot. Um, and whether it is a weak spot or not is another question. But at least they've thought it to be such. And mm-hmm. In fact, some some critics have even called this the Achilles' heel mm. of Christianity. That, that the Christians have no answer for how we know which books are in and which books are out, and so therefore, critics say. You, know, you Christians can believe it's these 27 books, but it's a blind leap of faith. You're believing with no grounds for believing, with no way to know. So yeah, you say these are the right ones, but it's just arbitrary and there's no real foundation for it. And so you can see why that would undercut our belief in the authority of the Bible. The, the authority of the Bible is undercut not just if there's mistakes in it or something like that. It's also undercut if we don't have the right books in it. Right. right. I mean, if we, if we don't have the right books in the New Testament, we can't really talk about what the New Testament teaches. We can't really talk about the New Testament theology we don't actually have a coherent New Testament. And you gave the uh, the fantastic Sizemore Lectures
0: at Midwestern's campus uh, back in February, which listeners can go and listen to that'll talk about some of these external um, criticisms, but also the internal evidences uh, of the books themselves that show that what we have really is the canon, and I recommend listeners go and find those uh, on Midwestern's website to be able to gain even more knowledge about that for themselves. Now, you wrote a more recent volume, uh, Christianity, The Crossroads, How the Second Century Shaped the Future of the Church. Um, talk to me about this book. What what birthed this uh, project?
1: Yeah, this this was a fascinating book to write and to do research for. Um, my fascination in the second century has been longstanding, partly because most of my work on canon and text tends to end up in the second century. Mm. It, it tends to be a transformative transitional time period where a lot of the major decisions about Christianity and about text and canon were answered there. And so I realized that for the for the future of the faith, a lot of decisions were made in the second century that affected the church for generations to come. And so I thought, you know what, we need to write a book on this. And in, 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 and upon doing so, discovered there's hardly been anything written on it, at least as a totality. It's a big gap in patristic studies. Many people write in the first century, many people write in the third century, but the second century tends to be Overlooked. So my motive was really because of the lack of scholarship on it, but also because of my own prior work in that in that century. The the second century
0: is so fertile with with ideas, but also some of the attacks that are coming
1: mm-hmm.
0: when we think of like a Marcion uh, attacking the the canon in his own way. Uh, how much of this is what's driving some of the conversations about canon in the second century? Uh, it, are those who are literally detracting from uh, the text of scripture.
1: Yeah. One of the things that was interesting about the second century to me when I when I did the research is just how vulnerable the church was during this time. I mean, it's the first time they existed without the apostles uh, right there to guide them. Mm-hmm. They're kind of on their own, um, standing up by themselves for the first time. I use it in illustration. It's like an animal in the Serengeti Plains who's born, you know, and is kind of wobbly and shaky, but you've got, you know, hyenas and Lions in the weeds waiting to to grab you, and mm-hmm. that's kind of how the early church was, and and it wasn't helping that heretics like Marcion were, were, were a problem too, and so she was she was bruised and battered, and it's actually an encouraging story because in the midst of all the the, the pressures from these heretics, the church survived, and and you know Marcion had his influence on the origins of the canon, and certainly uh, played a role, but I think that the the process of canon was well underway before he even started.
0: That's a great point. Uh, I, I think actually some of his uh, more pointed attacks relating to the, the canon, as I tell my students in Church History 1, uh, really don't make sense if there isn't a clearer understanding of canon to begin with. Uh, his attacks just don't make as much sense.
1: No, that's exactly right. I mean, the scholarly consensus up, till, uh, up before now has been that the Church reacted to Marcion, and I think the reverse is true. I think Mar- Marcion reacted to the church. In other words, I think Marcion reacted to an existing canon that he wanted to trim and edit and truncate, rather than the other way around. And I and I think you know Marcion was what what most heretics do. They take something that's already there and true and try to twist it and make it something else. And so, you know, Marcion is 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 the classic heretic, um, and, and goes down as one of the one of the classic heretics in the history of the church. But you know, the church stood strong. they 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 didn't believe in Marcion's truncated New Testament and they didn't kick out the Old Testament, which is another thing Marcion tried to do. That's and it's we praise the Lord for that mm-hmm. and uh, for
0: his goodness in preserving uh, the text of Scripture for us uh, so that we can benefit from the Word of God. So here at Midwestern, we're always talking about how things connect back to the church. What should pastors or church leaders understand from your research and your work that would be helpful even in their local church context?
1: Yeah, I think one of the things I always try to tell pastors and Christian leaders is that that this is an issue they're going to eventually have to address. There's just no way around it. When you talk about biblical truth and biblical authority in a world that's always challenging it, this is going to be one of the major challenges. Now, it's not the only challenge. There's other challenges to the Bible that they're going to have to face, but but to sort of ignore this one as if it is going to go away, it's not. Um, Every time there's a new gospel that's discovered in the sands of Egypt, every time there's a new article at Christmas and Easter about whether we can trust the gospels it, your your people in the pew are getting bombarded all the time and what most pastors don't realize is that these used to be the conversations in 50 to 100 years ago that were only in the academy right and now they're in the they're in the they're in the pew and so if they're in the pew as a as a, as a leader you've got to be able to to walk your people through that so there has to be some some minimal level of understanding to do that, and I hope I hope my books can help achieve some of that.
0: So outside of of your excellent Canon Revisited volume, which I do recommend for all pastors uh, to pick up and read, um, what are some other volumes that you would recommend very quickly for pastors to be able to connect to? I know back when I was training, I I found Ff Bruce really helpful. Yeah and his conversations about Canon that helped solidify
1: some things for me. But uh, what would be some other resources that you would point to? Well, there's a lot of great books out there. Um, Another book that I've written is called The Question of Canon, which looks at the issues from another uh, angle, which may be useful to pastors. I'd also recommend the the works of of Charles Hill or Chuck Hill, who's an RTS Orlando professor. And he's written a a wonderful book called Who Chose the Gospels, which Mm -hmm. I think is a fantastic introductory level book that any pastor could benefit from. Another RTS professor, Greg Lanier, has, wrote, has written a lay-level book on the origins of the Bible. Uh, the exact title escapes me, but effectively, it's basically how our Bible was put together by Greg Lanier. And It's a very basic, lay-level, introductory-type book that I think anybody in the pew could read and would be a great resource for pastors.
0: Dr. Kruger, thank you so much for joining with us uh, to talk about this essential issue. We're thankful for Athanasius, for his pastoral leadership with his own congregation. I pray that this becomes something that's an encouragement to uh, pastors and church leaders to encourage their people about the formation uh, of the Word of God. As always with all of our episodes, there are Uh, information links below to some of the books of Dr. Kruger, as well as some of the others that we've referenced here uh, in our podcast for you to be able to go and find, as well as the links to the Sizemore Lectures. You can always find uh, these resources at uh, the Sword and Trowel bookstore here on the campus of beautiful Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We'd love to have you visit us, but if you can't uh, come, those are also available online. So thanks for joining us this week, and we will see you next week.